We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Bill, this episode was originally meant to air last year, but like so many things during that time, it slipped away and into the far-off reaches of my mind until the moment, I suppose, was more right. We've talked before about how both fear and expectations can interfere with what you'll write, no matter the genre and in media of all kinds. Today, though, I wanted to share some of what my own journey through that has been like. From not at all to I'm still going to try. And what better place to begin than the moment when what you've been working on meets an indefinite end. When you've lost what you thought you had, and there seems to be a chasm on the road that you pass. Oh, and there will be spoilers starting around 12 minutes in, so if you'd prefer to keep everything about my books a surprise, you can save this episode for later. We hope you enjoy. Hi all, I'm your host, Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, your storytelling guide. Here with me today is... I'm David Herman, a.k.a. Ramnesis of the Brothers Herman and host of Otter Worlds. We are doing a bit of a workshop episode today, partly out of necessity, and I suppose in some ways as a code or an addendum to episode 20, I want to say four, where we discussed the things that keep people from writing. There are many, there are a multitude, although it usually comes down to fear, expectation, and a lack of knowing what truths would guide you to the inevitable, right? So is it a matter of discovery or a matter of handling what is inside you preventing you from finding? Because those are usually the things that keep us from creating in the first place or continuing what we create. And as you have and I have discussed off the show, and I think as I've mentioned a few times, my father is dying now. So that is hard, I think, for anyone in any part of life. For me as a writer, I have lived through this once before when he nearly died and it prevented me from writing. So the challenge I find myself with this time is how to not be there this in this case right how do i know the last time i didn't write for a long time because of the trauma how do i this time manage to go beyond just the trying to write to continuing to work on what i'm doing because the book is in this draft nearly done i'm on chapter 28 of 33 or so you know i have my regrets that he will never see the finished draft in all likelihood but that is out of my hands at this point because to force myself to try to write it and what time he has left is a foolhardy endeavor. You know, there's a thing I have to let go of to be able to both appreciate what time I have with him and also to write. But <laughs> it came to a head, I suppose, when I lost a draft that I was supposed to revise from for this section of the book, this arc of the story. And in the latter part of the book, as I talked about earlier, or what's become the last part of the book, that initially had been the middle, right? And this draft before this, that was the middle of the book, these chapters pertaining to the war and what happens right after in the past timeline. And I could not find what occurs after that because in reality, there wasn't a thing after those are the end, but you know, so fixated, these have to be the last chapters, right? So in this draft, I let go of that insistence 
and said instead, okay, if those are near, near the end, we have to find all of the middle. So now I'm back around to these and thought I'd have this draft from which to revise. And here I am digging through my accumulated audio notes, my Google Drive folders, sorted by draft, and <laughs> chapter 14 from that draft, chapter 16 from that draft, chapter 15. <laughs> Not there. I have no idea why. I spent a bit of time searching, but eventually that's... At a certain point, it's better to give it up as not there and just do what you need to do what you can with what you've got than it is to keep looking. Because at a certain point, it will become a permanent barrier right. otherwise. Then you get fixated on, well, what could have been there? How do I rewrite it when you don't even remember what it was? So I let go of that and said, fine. I mean, how often when you're going through those old notes do you find that, hey, I know I wrote... I thought this needed to be changed, but I was actually wrong. It was this thing over here that needed to be changed anyway. There were a few chapters prior to this that I rewrote about a third of an entirety, and some parts stayed mostly the same, although the heart of the scene is more articulate, it's clear. I know more of I knew more truths of the world story and character, so I'm able to better provide those and guide and show why the scenes occur the way they do. You know, in my process, I find it's voice of characters, the actions in the world itself. So draft two, the one prior to this was mostly what happens, not the so much the what's in the world that drives it in and of itself that they interact with, they respond to, they use, right, to get where they're going in the story. And that's a very surface way to describe it. But fundamentally, Truths of world story and characters, you know those, you know your tale begins and where it ends, you have the book, right? Or the screenplay or the novel or the video game, whatever it is. The, the writing, it is work, but you know the story because the end determines how you arrive to it. If you don't know the end, you use the beginning and the truths of world story and characters to arrive there. In my case, I knew the end first. So it became a matter of revising in this draft, draft three, the beginning and working my way back to the end, filling in all the things I wasn't able to find or describe properly, or I think with any real emotional truth before, you know, things happen, but not the real depth of the why, what's driving them to make this happen. And out of that narrative, what remains, and to your point, what is cast aside. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I have no choice. The whole chapter is cast aside. It doesn't exist. And I endeavor to find what happens from that. So here I thought, okay, I'll replace one chapter with another. <laughs> no. When you clear that space, that memory, that time to find what there is to find, that your truths, memories, your, your truths of world story and character will guide you to, you're in the complete and utter unknown. There's going to inevitably be surprise. And do you remember, I think it was the first episode, right? Mm -hmm. You asked me at one point, way back when we were talking origins of the world, is this yep. Earth? Is this like an Earth? Or is this something on and way to an Earth or thing like an Earth? Is it an arc of some kind that just happens to have qualities like Earth? I think it's because when you were initially describing the state of the world, there was this kind of element of this planet might not be whole. This might have like, like some of these islands might not be in the ocean. Some of these islands might have space between them. Right. And so if that opens up the possibility that you're not even on a planet. And there has been th a common thread, a truth of the world, that the sea is the sky, is space, is the stars between. There are parts of the world where it is impossible to differentiate what is ocean and sky because they're both at night and the stars reflect above as below. So how clear is that line? And 
I talked with your brother recently about what the other side is like when people are in this place that is not quite the same as where most of the story occurs and how it is either another possible or probably more likely parallel to the way things are in the world where most of the story takes place, which usually I refer to as the other that side for sake of convenience, because it's not this side. You know, when we talked at the end of the Dazed and Confused But I'm Afraid episode, I ended up discussing a little bit of a a brief moment where characters Adam, uh, Connor, and Orlando venture in from one side to the other through the aid of a an otherworldly, in many ways, creature, which we called a dragon for sake of convenience, mm-hmm. because it is massive and ancient and has weird knowledge and powers that are unlike most of what else is still in the world today. And man, I thought that was a one-off. <laughs> I should know. So when I endeavored to replace this chapter 15 with whatever else I would find, it was after I had followed the narrative to a point where a pivotal portion of the world was collapsed, was destroyed. This massive ancient tree we talked about, I think episode eight, the higher call, becomes where most of the present timeline occurs throughout the book. And that was a huge challenge I'd had of wanting that to be maybe midpoint and then other stuff occurs. But for anything this massive in the world, it's going to dominate and demand you spend time there, right? Mm-hmm. If it is that true and breathing and alive, if it's a city and a universe contained inside itself, in the metaphysical or metaphorical sense, then yeah, it's going to, like a gravity well, draw things narratively to it. I mean, it, it makes sense. You Very often, it's, it's better to think of elements of your world as characters. If there is a story, like, yes, there are elements of the of the world like you have like a hypothetically uh, you know you hear like the the story starts with the king having died and that's the setting but it's not an important element of the story it just casts a shadow that's absolutely fine but a lot of times with characters you hear hearing something about what they've done there's the inherent question of well why can't we hear more about that story um, and you have to st- end up spending more time on it. Well, the same is absolutely true with world elements for the same reason. They are characters. Right. And in any narrative, regardless of the medium, you do encounter that conundrum as a creator where you find something that is true and meaningful of word, story, and character, and then have to eventually decide, right, but is this is this revealed fully on the page as it were, or is there something that just influences what you see, hear, feel, or is described? You know? And in the book, I have two timelines past and present now and then there are allusions to others one in the great war before all of this x many years ago we'll say because there isn't a definitive number to that and there doesn't have to be but a long enough time ago let's say and as i was writing these chapters i started pulling back to these this triptych i had written before of two or three short stories over the course of two chapters darkness thunder and silence two of which are Moments that dive into far, far back in the history of the world. Adam in Darkness is a short story where, or a short piece of his chapter where his father is in the study and gives him this artifact. We'll call it a tablet for sake of being able to visualize it. It's not really. But by interacting with that, he has this experience of walking off on, on this derelict ship in the middle of space, mostly in the dark. And we've talked about this one, I think, on the show a bit. And there's a thing they find there in the twilight that is neither what it was before nor what it will be after, but it is changed by them. And so are they. And I sat there going, right, I didn't expect there to be a spacewalk in my book, but here we are. You know, here is organic matter turning into strange flora, you know, strange flora in the middle of a vacuum and on a derelict arcship of some kind that has nowhere to go. And all of these things, this detritus floating around it as people walk 
to the end, to the, the prowl of it, turn on a light and find what they find there. And yet in the beginning of the book, in the prologue, there's Adam's father talking about how, I think, was it there was a promise made, a promise of fire or something like for the stars to guide us. So here is one person's either record or memory or instance of that. And I know my process is to have these semi-conscious emergences of things that have been chewing on that I have to look at and go, right, but where does that fit into the narrative? I know, I know it does. I have the intuition at this point, the experience to know it does because I fought them enough to know that's silly for me. So if the subconscious or unconscious processes are guiding this thing to say, hey, this is a part of your world too, then there's that, that's the creative moment, right? Then there's the critical mind going, okay, right, awesome, but why? Because... <laughs> It's not like as okay, but why though? Yeah, and that that is a moment I think we've all encountered, and it's such a it can be such a disruptive or destructive one because the moment you try answering the but why instead of continuing to find, which will eventually answer the but why, you fall into that cycle of right, but I don't know what belongs here, so I've got to find that, but I can't find it because I don't know what leads to it. And da, 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 da. when you could have just asked, what if, right? What if it is? What if it just is there? What if dragon? What if space? Of the worst thing that will happen if you ask what if is that when you get to the end, you realize you can't use it. But then you've got that written out for something else somewhere along the line. So that triptych of short stories effectively was three little narratives focusing on Adam, Sophie, and then Connor. And two of those, well, one is the spacewalk based off of uh, an experience, a narrative in a contained container in a contained container, in a container that Adam's father gives to him, Joseph gives to him. The second is a, a short narrative going back to what prompts the war, kind of the spark that leads to the war in the way back time, not the now or then, but prior to all of this, which has been alluded to in the narrative is a moment Adam keeps on lapsing into now and then, and as the book progresses more and more so. And at this point in the narrative, or let me finish this triptych here, Silence is Connor's first venture into the other side with his family to retrieve this thing that has fallen in their forest, blown a part of the orchards apart. You know, probably just a meteorite, they think. But as they wander through the woods and do the old rituals and rites to go into the places where the gods reside, because in their lore, that's where everything forbidden and unknown is still left behind. They slip from their side to the other side, and what they find isn't just a meteorite. It's something that their father many years ago to, let's say, the god of the, the goddess of the underworld sacrificed, or looks like that, feels like that, and there's a decision they make that's traumatizing, because they're not sure if what they find is their lost sister or not, but they decide accordingly. And his uncle is terrified, so he kills her, because this is not family, this is not blood, this is something that's, you know, in true fey form, I suppose, stolen the face and the memory and the, is drawn us to here for a thing that is not right. So before they can verify or any of that, he kills her. And that's a trauma inflicted on the family. They'll never know. That old triptych was a one-off, I thought. But we blow up this for people's... Inf Connor is instrumental in destroying the Hyakul. I won't go into why, because a little bit of it is talked about in episode eight. You can slip back to that. And we go into some reasons why he's driven to and feels his right to. But it falls apart. And here he is in the ocean in this moment. And we talk about this in the episode with uh, your brother, where he has this point of immersion in not just the physical ocean, he's drowning, but he's given up his eye, he's lost clarity, he can see things and has been seeing things he couldn't before. So it allowed narratively to kind of wander off on this, not say tangent per se, but path, where as he's falling deeper and deeper and we can see what he sees as he sinks. And 
stream of consciousness narrative is very flexible in terms of what happens. So this was all I, this was all that I knew when I had to replace the fit chapter 15 that was gone. As I recall, one of the writers of uh, Star Trek uh, uh, used and abused that quite a bit. He liked it as such that you, you, you didn't have to worry about people poking holes in your stories because, hey, it's stream of consciousness. It's not going to fully make sense. It is kind of a classic sacrifice. Odin putting, you know, giving his eye to the realm of Mimer to see the future. Well, not really the future in this case, but to see what he couldn't perceive before. Although in his particular case, he loses his ability to affect the fate he can see. In order to believe in the impossible, you can't have absolute certainty, right? So if he has absolute certainty that a thing cannot be, it can't be as long as he has the certainty. So one or the other has to go. And he wants something to remember his brother by. He makes a bargain with one of those who dreams too much. And she gives him something to remember his brother by. What he thinks then is his brother's eye, right? And that's what I thought too. Oh, me. (laughs) Oh, me. It is and it isn't. Let's get this out of the way. As I dove into this, there was a stretch in that past timeline of the three of them, not from the now and the then, which is five years apart, but from the time before when there were three adolescents trapped in the war from respective, respective sides and what that journey was like. And there's a moment where the three of them over three different years, so or three different ages, like 10, 12, and 15, are trying to be, let's call it, trained by this old sage, a coden, someone whose job it is to make those who are too full of fire and those who dream too much safe and able to abide in society, to serve it. And because of who they are, they can't go to where they would normally go. They're, in one case, a child of royalty. Well, two cases, child of, you know, powers in charge. So they have an interest in not having their children go through the normal means. Mm -hmm. Others effectively rescued from the normal means by by the powers that be. So the three of them are cloistered from the way things would normally go and left to, for lack of a better word, the equivalent of a pope in terms of how that society is organized. The one who is best suited to take these particular children and make sure they survive. And this triptych then follows three times, 10, 12, and 15. They're at this shore on the far side of the continent in this series of caves down by the water being trained by this old man and the two soldiers there to keep them safe. And I'm in the second one now. And I'm, I'm pausing for a moment because it's one of those moments where I'm going, I'm chewing over how much I need to provide so that I can get to the conundrum I'm chewing over in terms of what I'm trying to write right now. Let's answer this. There was, and before you guys listen, if you don't like spoilers for the book, pause here. Too bad. That too. I've said there'll be spoilers. This is a workshopping show. So to talk <laughs> about how things get worked, we have to <laughs> reveal them. Mm-hmm. There is an orc. You're watching the sausage get made. And as you can tell, it's ugly sometimes. Welcome to the inside of a creator's mind. The difference is the sausage is not made from uh, from a pork shoulder. It's, it's made, made from, from your brain. <laughs> that too. But it is made from from uh, fictional, hopefully, people. Right. So I had to what if here. Because at one point, Adam's father, Joseph, as the king in this older timeline, starts laying for them a heretical line of thought of the, what the gods were actually like. So not just that there were two of them, there were three. Heresy one. Not just that there were two. LL and Hela. Ella and Hella, the two brothers that brought the seed of the sun from the sky, put it in a tree, chased off a hummingbird and ended up screwing that up. So one catches fire, becomes the sun, the other falls either falls apart. And that's the one that man finds and learns from. That's the essential canon of the faith that they belong to. So Adam's father, this king of that more remote place, is committing major heresy number one here by saying there's three gods, not two. And here are their names and that they weren't 
great at what they do. They were, in fact, if not children, then like children in terms of their understanding of the way things are. They were completely and utterly, utterly unprepared for the responsibility of making the world that they had to from what was left. And it took me a while to tease out what that meant in actuality in the narrative. But here are, here's the brass text of it, right? Way back when, before this world that characters are in. So before the now, the then, and any of those reflections on the war or things before, you know, that before people had a sense of this is my land and your land and my nation and your, there's just the ship in space or at sea, whatever you want to call it. And there are only three left who survive. They call themselves a number of names over time. One of their earliest sets of names, though, is Darkness, Thunder, and Silence. Ah, the triptych. Which are metaphorical and meaningful. But it was clear that whatever they were, they didn't understand what was left behind. They could walk around through the ship. They could see glyphs or lists of things like hand or tree, recognize that a shape is like their own hands, but not why, right? They could see a shape that suggests sun or tree, but it wouldn't register as sun as tree because they've seen neither before. This is all they've known in this, in their life, however long it is. And it became clear that these are the three who made things the way they are once they learned what words were and how to speak, how to describe, how to shape things, and that they used what they could find in the Ark to do so. And, you know, we could go into midichlorians or buzz and a bunch of otherwise. No, there is no nanotech here. We didn't do that. I mean, you could go into it, but I mean, Star Trek The Wrath of Khan never really, I, I don't think it gets seriously into how the Genesis machine works. Right. It just does. So, And it does different things based on where you use it. I, I essentially, I what if it. I said, okay, there's three of them. We'll call them gods because that's what they're perceived to be. They made what is now, so gods. And that they have, over time, shed most of what they were like to be what they are now. One of the biggest things they shed to be what they are now are beasts or horrors or creations, we'll call the dragon, that contains a lot of what they were and can do some of it. So one of them is a thing they encountered as I described in episode, I'll say, 24, Dazed, Confused, but Unafraid. There were two others. One of them was abused by man into making the Hayakala, into letting it function in the first place, because its nature was tied in, more, in a greater sense to memory whereas the others were tied to change, were tied to presence, right? And this is very surface because those things don't matter so much in what I'm chewing over right now. But just to give you a sense of the bigger, weird metaphorical things I had to wade through to get to the particulars that helped me describe. Let me frame this properly. So Connor destroys the Hayakal, falls into the ocean. It took me a while to put this as the framing device for it because it makes sense. I didn't find it first. In this new triptych, the beginning is him drifting in the water and he keeps on seeing these three kind of teardrop-like fish or shadows of them inside the silhouette of the sun, let's say. He can't get out of the ocean. He can't swim any higher or lower. He's just kind of drifting there, semi-conscious, watching these three little fish, we'll call them, spin inside the silhouette of the sun. And he keeps on drifting in and out of that within his triptych between where he is presently falling in the ocean or drifting in this memory of a kind and the actual experience of it. That is him having an encounter with one of those three, I think in the, we'll call them dragons because it's convenient to do that. They're big and serpentine and weird and alien. So let's just call them dragons because that's less. Call them weirms. Weirms, yeah. That's probably a good way to do it. Of these three great weirms, you know, primordial in the sense. It's not just, you know, here be dragons, et cetera, but these are primordial creatures. Right. You, you need something other than dragon because a lot of people just associate dragon with the big fire-breathing yeah. lizard. No, this is... Apparently, they're much more than that. Yeah, these are, 
without these things being what they are, the world wouldn't be as it is. They are, if you want to call them in a sense, lesser avatars of what was of the three that made, right? The world as it is. Avatar is wrong though, because they don't think of themselves as gods, but whatever. One had a shrine, he kind of did. That actually becomes pertinent. It became clear to me as I was writing that here is an encounter with a second of its kind. The one that ties to silence, the ties to memory, the one that was used to make the high occult, because of course it would be there when the thing collapses, dying. So here is Connor immersed in it in the sea. And the one eye his brother had that was replaced in him was amber, like a tree, like the sap of a tree. And of course the sun has this weird amber hue in it. And throughout the entirety of this flashing back and forth, there's always, there are these moments where he sees either that color of the amber or more likely that amber plus three little things inside of it. It could be three stones lying on the, you know, on the beach side or whatever, but it's just there present at every moment in the memory, in the reflection too. So it became clear to me that the framework for this new triptych is his encounter with this primordial thing and whatever it's trying to show or convey to him. Are each of the three uh, stories going to be related to one of the three, even if it's, even if it's all being shown by only one of them, are the stories each related to one, uh, like a different one of the three? Essentially in this case, no, because it's one's perspective. Yes and no. It's one's perspective. It is the one's perspective. Right. No, that, no, I, I definitely got that one. That's why I was saying they, they might all be being shown by the same one, but it's each story, a story of a different one through the eyes of the same one. Yeah. It is fundamentally three little stories of, of uh, Connor, Adam and Sophie, but each one of them ties deeply into one of those three primordial and the primordial are, and this is, I guess, maybe a good place to, to kind of lay down a thing I stumbled on. It's better to think of them as like a path or conduit or channel. They're not the fundamental thing. They are a transitional state between what Adam, Connor and Sophie are now and what they were. So they're, Interacting with the way, interacting with them as a way to see and understand what they were like before this. Okay, these primordial things are not entities so much as pathways, and one of the ends of the pathways essentially is each of these three characters in your book. Right. So there are two ends, right? Because we're talking past and present. Present: Adam, Connor, Sophie, just as people, just as humans. Dream too much, full of fire, just people. It became clear, and this was the thing I struggled with that they were more before, but became less deliberately. The three of them. Yeah. And obviously gave up a lot of the why of that and the memory of it. Are they? Yeah. Okay. So that, that is very interesting. So it's sounding like in some way they are these three worms. Yeah. They are the three worms, but the worms aren't the whole of the three. Like if we're talking slice of a pie. Yeah. They're not, it's not like somewhere back in the past, these three worms basically said, you know what we want to, we want to be human and they shed a bunch of stuff and they became these three. Right. It is, more along the lines of, in some very real way, these three humans share an element uh, with one of the three worms and their history and all of that, and and they really are tied into that. Right. Uh, but they're not these. They're not. They're both like strongly connected to that the the entity instantiating the entity and not at all at the entity. Right. So in, in essence, there's the three worms, each of them tied to one of the three because each one was shed by one of the three. And thus this seemed like something they cooked up overnight in chapter four of the book. One of the characters that Adam encounters a two fall of fire is shedding. And there is a scale like growth that occurs in the middle of that. And for the longest time, I didn't know why. I just, okay, this is happening. Let's just leave it. We'll find out why. When you get down to it, the, the, 
the one the nice thing when you when you're dealing with any kind of anything mythic or progenitor or anything like that is you don't have to worry too much about the coincidence because there is a very narrative component to those kind of entities. Right, it is out of this relationship. Then the things that they affect in the world are going to have that kind of relationship, or you know. So in fact, the relationship between Adam and Connor and Sophie is going to inform us about the relationship between these three worms in some way. Right. And the three worms themselves are perhaps even a reflection is the best word to use there. They are not the entirety of what was of what they were shed from, because those three things are not people. They're not human. Right. Arguably that like they're shed and not shed at the same time. They're still though the sheddings are still a an active part of them and yet not. Right. So one framework I chewed over, which I'm not sure on, but I think might give us a kind of a bounds for deriving our particulars because we're getting closer to the point at which I am trying to build what I didn't know I would need to before. Adam, Connor, Sophie, each of them is tied to one of the three worms, we'll call them. And each of those three worms is tied to one of the three creator beings, we'll call them darkness, thunder, and silence, because those were the first names, right? So here's Connor submerged in the ocean, encountering the worm tied to silence, which is if we're talking, you know, emanations, avatars, whatever line of descent you want to talk about, a missing link between silence and Connor, the human being walking the earth in the narrative now, right? So this mm-hmm. is a way back part of that. This thing is dying. It's imparting what it can of its memory before it dies. And that's the fundamental narrative structure under which these three shorter stories are told that <laughs> replace the missing chapter. I'm on the second story now, which is Adam's. And this is where a good deal more of the truth of the arc itself and the three of them as they were, darkness, thunder, and silence, wandering through the arc, trying to understand what it meant, traveling. So that's that's part of the narrative. Part of that of Adam's experience too is out of curiosity, because this is a question that occurs to me, and I'm wondering if you have an answer or not. So one of the things that occurs to me, based on what you said, that they weren't ready to do this, they're wandering through not understanding things, is are these three children? Effectively, yes, and not human children. I Right. I, I got that. Does that mean that the Ark itself is much greater than they were? This is what I understand of the Ark now, because I don't in entirety. It's not an Ark where bodies were preserved. Right. It's not the frozen cryo ship going through the, you know, the depths of space to find the planet, whichever will inhabit. It is at best something that has maintained and preserved the memories and qualities and the material and the means by which to make man again. It did do that at some point prior to this. These three are the only who survived. And it's clear from what I know now that if they, that part of why they survived is that they were not made like the rest, whether they arose or occurred outside of or by some now, agent. Good. When you say survive, do you mean like they all like the, the rest of them all died or the rest of them all left? So because you have two possibilities and this may not at all be important. This may not be important at all for the story. But one is that this arc may have already fulfilled its purpose. And it it it, re- and it and it restored everything wherever it found it, and now it ha- and then it went off because it had no further purpose, right. and these three were left behind. Or it could have tried and failed. It seems, as best I know now, that it tried and failed, or that it decided toward the end the best thing to do would be to because it can make man again, reassume him. So it left 
made man on the ship, probably perhaps, let's say, in preparation to seed a planet. That seems feasible, right? And something, planet, another dimension, a way of being. The process failed. The ship is stalled in space. It can't go anywhere. And there's only so many resources on this thing. So eventually, after leaving man to its devices alone for long enough, the ship decided enough was enough. You are not, this is a failure. You're mine again. And reassumed man. Took everything it had used to make him back. You're on its way. So that it could try again. Because it has the means to make man. It has the means to unmake man. But it's clear that this way failed. So what is left of the Ark now, from what I know, finds these three who have survived. And it cannot speak to them as it has the rest of man. It cannot convey to them through words, sound, visuals, language the same way. It doesn't seem to be so much a lack of sensory organs. They seem to have hands and fingers and eyes and hair and nails and all that. But it cannot, for lack of a better word, establish a proper channel to them. Right? Or doesn't want to. Perhaps it hadn't wanted for the two for the longest time. But at this point that it becomes important to the narrative... It knows that all means before failed. So for this to succeed this time, there has to be a new, there has to be a different way it it goes about making man and placing man somewhere so that they survive and it fulfills its purpose. I'm getting vibes of several different things here. Right. The first one is very real Terranigma vibes with the destruction and re-emergence and destruction and re-emergence of man. I don't think that's necessarily a good one. That's just what I'm getting the vibes of. The second one is like a neon Genesis vibe with one of my understandings of one of the things that was going on in neon Genesis is that each of the angels was a potential pathway humanity could have taken. Effectively a possible course of evolution. And so, and humanity was one of them. In fact, Uh, as, as it turns out, humanity was one of the angels trying to show its preeminence. Uh, and that it's the way, it's the one that should be the, the inheritor. And so each of these... Three, <laughs> Literal possible world devouring the other possible worlds. Yes. And these if these worms could be, each three of them be, potential things, instantiations of what humanity could be in that regard. Right. Here's what I do know. Eventually, at some point, a portion of what's left of the Ark, we're calling it Hyatt's the tree, because the language that it tries to communicate through... The fundamental language of the world has always been Hebrew. It's just been part of the world since the beginning. The first chapter is called Safer Book. So that was the truth of the new world I knew a long time ago. So they call it, when they learn words, Hyatt's the tree. Hyatt's the tree, we'll call it the tree, decides, tries to reach them, but has not the means to for the most part. It finally succeeds, kind of, through moments of wakefulness, through moments of sleep, of dream, send them some kind of audio, some type of sound, some type of auditory experience. But because they don't know what words are, it's just noise and it haunts them and torments them because they can hear tonality and feeling things that sound like them, but are meaningless. And over time, they finally, bit by bit, like pulling stones from the river, are able, or from the stream, are able to, if not understand what those words mean, assign meaning to words, to make a sense of it and build a language and slowly grasp, if not fully where they are or what they are that they are here and this is their world and this is how they describe it. Like they're being taught English by a haunted speak and spell Ouija board right. it's, in a different language. It builds a channel. The channel is one way. They can't respond to it in any way that it can receive. And, I, and through the course of writing the second triptych, there is a point where I can see, I see Adam back then, we'll call him Adam, and he's carrying 
again, not the book, but a tablet, right? And it has handwritten notes. It has an etched image of a tree that is somewhat circuit-like circuit -like with leaves that are shaped like nodes. So tree in not exactly the sense we know it, but tree-like, because that is the image of tree they've seen carved into liths on what they call the road in the ship. And, you know, the main paths around it. They are eventually trying to reach this thing to actually, you know, to, to in earnest communicate with it, right? So part of the end of this narrative is that journey of, of this triptych with Adam is him, Connor, and Sophie, as they were then in the way back as darkness, thunder, and silence, trying to venture through the ark and what little they know of it through what words they can grasp and understand and enact the rituals or rites of making a door open to get on what's the other side. And through this chapter, this part of the triptych of Adam, everything had been going back and forth between him, the three, you know, the three of them training with this old sage, and these older memories of what had happened before him leaving to join these two here. And eventually that kind of rolling back and rolling back, rolling back to a flash of being at the, being on the ark, being here, trying to open the door, right? Or before that is being on the ark, wandering through, recognizing the two of them, so that's the end of a scene. Then the next, and this is where I struggle because a few structural thing happen, things happen that I don't usually like to do. Usually when a lot of things happen in a scene, I like to separate them out and make different scenes of them because too many things in a scene makes it overly complicated mm -hmm. and hard to describe. But there is a parallel structure in what is happening in these two moments. And the details of one answer why the other is occurring the way it is. So you can see why not having proper world building or not having enough world building in the one or the other causes it all to collapse because they're interdependent. After that long preamble, here's the crux of this final scene of the chapter. In this chapter of Adam, of, of this triptych, of Adam's part of the triptych, he is acknowledged as being too full of fire, but his mother suspects, this is the queen of that lost kingdom, or queen's a loose word for it, suspects that he is more than just one of those full of fire. There are plenty of those on the world, but he, she's witnessed enough of her son, his friend, and this other girl, Sophie, to suspect that there is more to being full of fire and those who dream too much on the whole than what they've witnessed to date. So she is terrified of the truth she'll find, but also willing to kind of make a ritual or a summoning, right, let's call it, to call something down to answer and or to, to prove, right? that this is, you're not just a strange human, you're something more. And I'm terrified of what that something more might be, but I need to know in order to know what to do. Because the rest of the world is heading toward conflict, heading toward war. And there are parameters I don't, there are parameters I don't know. There are truths of the world I have yet to find that I need to verify. So here she decides to work with them after the two of them foolishly try catching a little infant version of one of these big ancient primordial things because, you know, they spawn. And again, just like there are humans that are too full of fire and dream too much, there are, let's call them little worms, right? M mundane creatures that are just weird and strange too, that are drawn to those too full of fire. That's a mundane thing in the world. So they as kids try catching one thinking it will give them answers, but it's a nymph. Can't speak if any of them can, although perhaps they can. They get injured badly. His mother gets pissed and decides, okay, fine. We're going to do the summoning right. If we're going to summon, we're going to call one of the primordials crazy, right? That's going to end well. She has no other option. She, there's no other way to verify. And it's a risk. It's a tremendous risk because if the little ones like to consume those two full of fire, what do the big ones do? So the ritual they're enacting in 
the present part of this narrative, this chapter is, let's call one down. So part of this chapter or part of the scene is describing the right as it occurs. That is interwoven, though, with the three of them, Adam, Connor, and Sophie, as they were way back on the Ark, trying to get through the door to find the thing that has been sending them through this channel, all these sensations and memories over time, trying to reach out to them to get them to come to it. And here's the giant carp moment. For those of you who have not heard us talk about this in the past, Dave, as a player in one of the storytelling games we ran a while back, had a a character who could conjure parts of his collection, magical creatures and things, to do his bidding briefly. Mm -hmm. And you guys were falling down an infinite well and needed refuge for a moment. And I forget the exact particulars of what you gave to me, because you don't give me, you know, I want a hydro tree or things like that, unless the conditions exist, the truths exist for that being you know, thing to be called. Do you remember roughly what you said to me? Cause I'm, I no, I don't. I mean, I remember, well, I remember what my thinking was something along the lines of here. We had this other character that tried to take a lot of part of my collection and because I don't let things stand like that, but I don't necessarily fight them in the moment. I, I, I instead reinterpret them. I think I interpreted that. Well, okay, fine. You know, he's keeping part of my collection. He is part of my collection. Right. So I can use him to rescue us right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to call shelter thing that something that wants us to be safe, not just can, but wants us to, it'll actively try to keep us safe. And I remember having this moment of sitting there going Kool-Aid man through the wall. It's the giant carp in my head before I described a giant, let's call tractor trailer sized carp emerging through. Oh yeah. What a place it shouldn't be because this is a well down the earth. There's no hollowness for it to go through to get there. But the way magic worked, this happens. So, oh, yeah, giant carp. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he probably was full of Kool-Aid. He was full of everything else. No, he was full of the uh, that beverage, you guys, the brew, the pig's addle brew. He was full of that, yeah. He was also carrying the goblet, if I remember correctly. Yes. There were a lot of weirdnesses inside because he was a there was a way of containing things, which was important because he can contain all of you. But I call it the giant carp moment because it was utterly absurd in the moment it happened until we started picking apart the why mm-hmm. and then oh yeah i know that's that is the inevitability here isn't it weird as it is is she is her ritual contacting them as they as the kids trying to going through this arc ship uh, with the uh, is that is that the source of the this thing that's drawing them on so here's in in a sense here's the as best I can recreate it, here's the, oh yeah, giant carp moment. Because I'm sitting here thinking, what is the actual, what is, you know, what's she reciting? What's the chanting? What's the drawing on the ground or whatever that is? I, I knew from earlier scenes that there are three artifacts that this primordial was attached to, the one they're trying to call. One is a pinwheel from its shrine, because back when it was worshipped as something divine, people would erect pinwheels to it because it was perceived to be a god of seas and storms. And But actually it was a child who liked to play things. It was kind of childlike in its reaction to this. And one is a picture book of the first time someone climbed up the mountain to find it and gave it that pinwheel, right? So, and one is its missing eye. And it's had, that missing eye has been a truth of the world for about 15 chapters. I, I, I didn't know where it went. I just knew it was missing. So. No, well, we know now. She has, Adam's mother, all three of those, the pinwheel, one of the pinwheels, perhaps the first, probably the first, the book that tells that old fable and its missing eye. So, you know, things attuned to this ancient primordial creature, it'll want its eye back, right? But that's in and of itself not enough. And 
then I try to think, well, what establishes the channel? Because fundamentally, she's trying to create something by which to send a signal, right? Channel through which a signal can occur to reach this thing that is not here, per se. It's not just, you know, floating around in the ocean. If anything, maybe it's kind of in low orbit space to give, you know, a sense of where it is. That's where it was last time, roughly. So it's got to be a powerful signal through a very durable or at least strong enough channel to convey. But what is she saying to it? Because this thing is ancient. It's, you know, like it's like a like a great white whale, a great whale. It's mostly semi-conscious drifting through the sea. So what's going to wake it up and get its attention? The giant carp moment was a conundrum she presents where the two brothers, Hela and Ella, in the origin story of the world, come down from the deep, you know, they pull out a seed of life from the deep dark well of night and venture down this road through winelit sea, uh, wine, winelit stars, uh, cities dark and fields of wheat, that, you know, wheat is white and stuff like that. They go through the ruins of something ancient and fallen apart and eventually stumble upon two trees by a pond that they reside in. And that's where the world begins roughly from that experience. But what she calls into question is how did they know those trees were trees if no trees existed before? <laughs> and I sat there going, she's, kind of, she, she's attacking the very foundations of reality. <laughs> because this is the established myth. There, there are other origin myths to the world that people believe, Connors, people have a different origin myth that's as grounded as this one. But fundamentally, how did they know a, how did they know a tree before tree, before trees grew, before trees existed, before there was a world in which there could be trees or even just two trees? And fundamentally, the answer was they had to have met and found a tree, the tree before. Here she is establishing, as you'd said, effectively a bridge that is not just conceptual, but spatial, time-spatial, right? That is not just a, hey, I'm not speaking to you just here now, but you then too. I recognize that there is truth to the world that is buried and old, and I'm pulling it back to the surface as I'm pulling you down toward us. I'm offering you my son because he's full of fire. And that's the thing that feeds you if the big sun in the sky isn't enough. So, you know, here's part of the risk of the sacrifice here to verify what her son is. She has to sacrifice him. So, you know, this is a one-shot effort. Hopefully, ideally he survives, but he has to be there and present and part of the right. But fundamentally this challenge, if I, I know a truth of the world that has been hidden and I am making it apparent I know there was a tree before. I don't know what it is or how it is or even the why it is for the most part, although I'm going to try pulling back to that. So here she is digging out as she recites. And as Adam and Connor are enacting the right, her recitation of that or that challenge is drawing him back more and more to that moment they first tried to find and meet the tree. Because, and here's the part I was struggling with. How do you establish a channel, right? with a thing that you don't know, that you don't get the frequency of, you effectively have to emit at a varying frequency, set of frequencies, one after the other, or just effectively emit at all of them or enough of them at once, then find some kind of resonance, right? That'd have to be some type of ping, effectively. Yeah, you need to balance it off of them. You need to have, you need to, you either need to, to try to get them to respond or you need to bounce it off of them. If you're going to go with a radio communication as your metaphor for what she's doing. Well, that's what it felt like, because fundamentally, the tree itself, way back when, to darkness, thunder, and silence, did the same. The one thing it could ping off was sleep and dreams, or semi-consciousness. That was the one state of mind they were in that it could reach to them, and only through this limited means of what it contained. Just these. You realize her question is the equivalent of, is a hot hot dog a sandwich? (laughs) Yes. 
It is a paradox. And well, or but it might be a bootstrap paradox. Yes. In that her the, her communication might be the method that they learned about trees. Possibly. And the I don't need to know that. No, you don't need to know that. Uh, I'm putting it there because it might come back because she, because if she's affected the past in some way, then there are there are things that can happen before they should. This is and this is where I chew because she is what she's effectively doing through this recitation is helping her son attune, right? She's helping him find or because again, if he's the one, and this is where I'm partly struggling, if through whatever means he's emanating or emitting or you know trying to resonate with the thing they're reaching, presumably right? Presumably this primordial thing that they've created this ritual for, they have three artifacts that it is emotionally attached to and physically connected to, you know, that are offerings alongside. Let me give you the twist because it's one that I could, I saw before all this final, before all this came to be. The primordial thing is not what arrives. So we haven't done it effectively yet. No. So what comes before is instead there. So in the origin, Hellel and Ella climb the tree chasing after the hummingbird. It's stolen the seed that, you know, will become the sun. Hellel grabs onto the seed, gets pulled up with the bird, becomes the sun, burns in the sky. Ella falls back, Ella falls back down, shatters to earth, remains behind. That thing that is greater than the primordial, Hellel, comes down. A, we'll call it, not, you know, the first child of the three creators. Uh, in order of path, right? Let's just say this is truncated. Darkness, thunder. This is something created, well, this primordial thing is something that's created by the worms in their infancy. Other way around. Like, or is it the thing that comes before them? Right. So other way around. You've got the three children, darkness, thunder, silence. Darkness, terminal point, Adam. There are a lot of steps between that. Pardon. Thunder, terminal point, Adam, for now. So thunder goes through iterations as he as he gets a better sense of who and what he is. In order of oper- you know, in order of evolution, let's say, or descent, let's say, it's thunder bunch of different names. Important name, Thunder, Hellel. When Thunder decides to become a person, names itself Hellel. When, th- okay. when Hellel decides to become a human, just an ordinary person, not what it is, it sheds the primordial thing, the worm, and then keeps going down to human. So the worm is maybe a little bit of a branch off, but in order, it's of you know greater to lesser. Thunder, Hellel, worm, Adam. If we're going to go from you know big creator thing to little person thing. So they think, so Adam's mother thinks they're conjuring Weirm, but they go a step up. They can't reach the big creator thing because that doesn't exist, but they reach what's closest to it. Whatever, in essence, is the thing in the sun. That's what they call down, which is, of course, disastrous. does answer her question, though. And that's the the consequence of the right. They they try calling the Weirm, they call down the thing that shed it to become a person instead. And... I know the right ends there, but the the thing I'm struggling with, one of the things I'm struggling with most right now is how is he emitting? What's the right itself? Because I can kind of see it. I see the artifacts, but he's too full of fire. And one thing I have never answered, or I think really had to answer because there hasn't been a need to, is what that means when you're trying to effectively establish a radio channel. For whatever reason, my mind is saying, is saying that the radio channel analogy may be taking you as far as it can at the moment. But there is, you, you've been talking about having to establish the channel, find the right frequency to reach them, or find the right signal to bounce off of them so that you know you're broadcasting in the right direction. What that means 
is if you want an actual communication, it goes two ways. Yeah. You're finding the right frequency to reach them, but you have no control over what frequency they emit. So you have to find the right shape to, to receive their frequency. Here's what I've kind of been seeing. And let me, let me present it to you because I'm not sure of it. Right. So Adam, Connor, Layla, the mother, enacting the right. She's reciting. Connor and Adam are creating, let's call it the summoning circle, whatever it is. Oh, hold on. I've got an idea just really quickly that just happened here. Say it. And it also plays into why they might have summoned. Was it Hillel that they might they're have summoned? Okay, so they're trying to summon. This is silly, but they're trying to summon the worm. They're trying to summon the worm, which they named after the three Japanese creator Shinto gods. So this one, they're trying to summon Susanoo. That's what they named it. Mm-hmm. When thunder became Hellel and shed thunder, the thunder it shed is Susanoo. Right. So here's the thing. Again, you've got Adam, who already is part of this chain. Yes. Um, and then you've got the worm, which is what left what was left over. In other words, in, in a sort of a way, the worm plus Adam is Hellel. Right. Those two together. In a sort of a way. Is most of it, yes. But they're not summoning the worm itself, which, but, but, the, but Adam's supposed to be the human. And if he grow like, and if he starts growing into that, so if he's trying to summon the worm, that means he needs to grow to be a bit more like it, but he already is Adam. So if he grows to be a bit more like it, what he grows to be is more, is essentially more like Hillel because he's both those pieces. That might be why Hillel shows up is because all of a sudden he he was trying to form to, to become the thing that could summon the worm that could get its attention. But what he actually formed was the thing to get Hillel's attention. Right. If the worm had made the call, if Susano had made the call, it would have if Hillel would have responded because that's a clearer path. But by effectively well, yeah, absolutely. It's because Adam, in trying to summon the worm, makes himself more like the worm. But Adam plus the worm is actually Hillel. So he 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 thought it, they, they they thought they were making him more like the worm, but they were actually making him more like something else because they didn't understand what right. it's, it's the it apple meant. trying to become the flower, not realizing the flower is attached to a tree. Yeah, essentially. And so the apple accidentally made, you know started becoming a tree, which got the original tree's attention. I have this as I've been able to describe it. It feels to me like as as the as the thing they're trying to come as the thing they think they're trying to someone comes down to them, becomes more aware of them. Adam is more is less and less able to stay in the now in the right itself. He's more and more drawn to the memory of that first time they encounter the tree. It, effectively, as he tries to connect or resonate with what this thing is, he tunes too close to its memories, right? And its memories are more of that time, more of are closer to that time than to the now. So it's also a stronger signal. Hillel is, is, is active. So he's got a signal. The worm is kind of a sloughed off thing. It's not, it's, it's more reactive. It's, it, it's accidentally easier to reach Hillel if, I mean, it's harder in the sense that he's in the past, but if you're doing something that doesn't have that as a barrier, but there's a thing that one of the things that this reminds me of, and I'll see if I can do this one really quickly. It reminds me of the game Mage the Awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the begin, when Mage the Awakening was set up, you had a whole bunch of mysteries going on about what was happening. It was supposed to be this very Gnostic world. But some of what was going on is you knew that you, the, the, the mages were living in this fallen world. 
And there was another world, a world of magic called the, the supernal world that seemed to have been taken over by these, these evil rulers that were trying to keep everyone mm -hmm. in the dark. There's a lot of other stuff going on with that one. But mages were somehow drawing power from the, the supernal world. And there were other mysteries too, and histories of the uh, ages where there was much more power and people knew what magic was, uh, and a language in a particularly strange language and ruins that often displayed this language, that it had meaning. You could learn to decipher it, but it didn't have a form, which is to say it didn't have a structure, it didn't have a, a syntax. The, the words meant something, but you couldn't speak in it. Right, they were logos. Right. Uh, and that turns out to be a very profound element of what's actually going on, because now that the, 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 the game is in its, its second edition, what's going on is that the supernal world is a world of, and we kind of knew this in the first edition, uh, is a world of concepts. It is a world of ideas. More the, the, the important element is coming up. So the, the, the language, these words aren't a language. No one formulated it. They are actually descriptors of things in the supernal world. They, they, are, they are words written into the supernal world. That's why they have meaning, but that's also why there's no syntax. But the thing is that part of being a mage, there's a, a moment where mages go from being mages to arch archmages. And once they go beyond archmage, they can actually become directly a part of the supernal world. So they start out just having connection. And when they become part of the supernal world, they become a new word in that supernal world. But there's an intermediate stage, Archmage. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, part of the way that works is that they have, they have turned their own soul into a pathway that is starting to, uh, to branch up into the supernal. Mm. It is now a pathway between the two worlds. They are not there yet, but they've turned it into something else. They've turned it into a bridge. And there's something about the the, the connecting and, and the changing of Adam that reminds me of that change of soul. So in a sense, in order to confirm what he is, she has to make him, she has to make that make him into it. Yes. But she doesn't know what that is. So you've still got a problem there. Right. Okay. So here, these were a couple of things that came to me from what I have so far. He tries first to think like. So in the initial part of the write is just the actual writing down, you know, they are working around the first artifact, the pinwheel, and articulating the, we'll call it a summoning circle or whatever there, because, you know, artifice, it's, it seems to make sense, so let's try it. And that doesn't work, but the reflection he has then kind of keys off of the thinking or the, the thought, idea, sensation of. The second time is closer to the feeling. It's the three of them actually trying to open the door way back when. And when he withdraws from that, he's more feverish and exhausted and fry. And I I see, I saw it described on there, you know, so far the lines he has on him in the present, which are closer to Hillel than say like the scales of Sano, Susano. You know, so that that's apparent that he is visually changing. There's not much of him left that isn't covered by this. And these lines are similar to how the tree itself is seen, right? I've described the tree, this kind of tree throughout the book as more circuit-like in terms of how angular the branches are and that the leaves are closer like a node on a board. And that's what these lines are more like on him. And perhaps here's a missing link. When they go to the other that side and have ventured toward what is perhaps the most fundamental part of it, it is like the Bolivian salt flats, flats reflective above and below. But when Adam looks down, 
through the water, he can see this series of roots that are that same pattern as well. So there is a, I'm not sure, I I don't have exactly the word for it, but it kind of seems to me like there's a process of think, feel, and then be, right? There's something before thought and feeling, pulse being that has to, pulse feels fundamental because signal and channel too, but it has to you, he, he, he can't just search for by being in the same mind or being in the same sentiment. He has to just be as the thing he's trying to establish that channel to. You can't really be without the, um, without the willing participation of the thing that he's trying to be. Right. And it seems like the only way, or it seems like, I guess it's communicating that through what it is returning to him in terms or letting him experience in terms of memory, right? or helping him, I'm not sure of the word. The the reply seems to be the memories he's experiencing, right? As well as the ways he changed because of that. That effectively he cannot be reminded without being remembered. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. It also strikes me that the question that that how did you know what a tree was that ends up hitting the that ends up hitting thunder might be an important component of why thunder becomes Hillel. Not that's the moment it happens, but that's the moment it starts. Thunder is the one who first finds words and speaks them and teaches the others. And he's the one trying to open the door in the first place as the two of them help them to reach this tree that's been giving him these memories from, as best they can tell, not them, but from people who came before. Have the kids, like the kids may not have words. Can they communicate with each other though? Yeah, they this is partly for convenience as a writer because trying to have them communicate without words would be a nightmare. They, they have learned words well enough to speak to each other and to get a sense of what they experienced. Yeah. Or you could, or you could totally let it be a mystery uh, that, that you hit with a little bit later that yes, they appear to us to be communicating in words, but they're not. Right. So what are they communicating in and in, and that actually becomes important. Right. Because if you can't, if even if the channel's established, if the signal itself is meaningless, then there's a there's a book I remember reading where and and uh, at the moment I cannot remember what it is, but it's a bunch of animals talking and they're trying to figure out like you know it's 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 kind of like an it, it starts out like an Aesop's tale, right? And so these animals are talking, trying to figure out what happened to the world because something big has just changed. And it, and and at one point, one of them comes in and goes, you. Um, you know, well, the real mystery I want to know is how are we talking? Cause we never used to. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a fun, like, it's a fun reveal. I mean, I, I can't remember if the, if the rest of the story is good or not, but I like that. That is a fun reveal. I do know that when they're talking in the, as the three of them, as the children, right? Adam thunder, he slips again and again into using or trying to use, he think, you know, see if he's using right the old words, which are mostly in Hebrew, and then providing the analog alongside it, or the translation alongside it. And it's a, there's a bit of a grasping too. It's there's the sense of, I have language we can speak, but I'm not sure if I'm using these things right. You know, there's a thing that communicates to us and the, the way it seems to us appears to be in the shape of a, a tree. And this is word for tree. So this is what we're going to call it. Strikes me that their language is kind of Calvin ball beforehand. That the because they don't have words, um, the meaning that isn't changing. But how they say, they never say it the same way twice. But they understand. They always understand it's the same meaning. And the thing that they have to overcome 
is the idea that a word might have the same meaning every single time. Right. And in earlier in the chapter, one of their big struggles have been, what is my name? What am I to be called? Because that defines what I am. And they go through iterations of playing with that. So therefore, the deliberate choice to name themselves, hell, el, el, on, I, and after that is, you know, to talk about, to return to your language of the supernal, not just a, a matter of nomenclature, it's a matter of deciding what they are going to be and what they will not be. So it, it's sort of along the lines of that their original names are not really names at all. No, darkness, thunder, and science are just what they, reflective of what they are in some sense. Which explains why the, if, if you go down this path, that question of how did you know what a tree was before you saw one matters because that's, that is an element of, you know, have a meaning, a coherent meaning. And it, it is the moment, it is part of that process and they can't be what they were before once they have names and those names are, uh, coincide with when they have language and that, and she asked a question that goes straight to the nature of language. Which is why the third part of her right has to, has to draw or drive Adam back to that beat where they get through the door, they arrive at the tree, whatever the tree is. And here is how I see it in terms of the, the framing, because I, I, I see it now and I've drafted someone on the page of her reciting and her recitation slips from the interrogative into the descriptive. So how is, how could, et cetera, et cetera. This third part is her describing the three of them walking down this very dark winding path where they have only this one, you know, the one light to find the tree. And this tree is what made man and unmade it. Whether it was tree before that or after that, I don't know yet, but it is what's left of the ark. The reason the ark is dark is that it has taken most of what is what remains of power to you know to provide for it. So there's a I think perhaps a bit of a sense of you know desperation here on its side that it needs it needs something a means of means by which to succeed this time. And when I was describing or after Adam reflected and saw or saw those kind of roulette patterns underneath the water and where they led to in the distance, this kind of massive, strange, articulated tree thing before the water washes over them and sweeps them away. They had a conversation that ended in, or led to the realization that the gods didn't make the world. They made a world that, in entirety, they made a world that could reflect man because that's the best one for him. Mm. They couldn't find a way to make one that was suitable for him. So they gave one that would respond and reflect to his needs and desires because he would know better than they what works for him. They hope. They, they're children. So in that sense, yeah, the, this other, that side is kind of a, a pre or proto world. It existed before everything else. It exists alongside kind of the dream world, I guess, from Aboriginal lore in that yeah, sense. Well, if that's, if that's the reveal, keep in mind, if the world reflects what mankind needs, then the one thing that the ritual didn't take into account is that the world is doing that. And it, it over amplified it because it, it, it was adapting to the need. So part of why this works too well is that the world itself is too responsive to their want. Part of me, part of me wondered why they, because they're, they're doing this on the roof of the palace, it had to be there. You know, usually you do these kinds of rituals in remote locations. And it struck me that some, because there are like with the palings, right? There, there are places where ruins of remnants of the Ark reside. And it feels like some portion of that is within the palace or beneath it. It would make sense that the, the well, the palace is going to be wherever humans survive the best. Right. If, uh, in other words, the area where the world is the most re reactive human needs. So 
gross, effectively out of one of those, we'll call them seeds as it were, but where people emerge from built on and over again and again and again. Yeah. The palace is just, in the sense, the shell on the outside of that. The palace is a marker of more of a location than it is. It's not the palace that's important. It's why the palace is there that it's that is important. Which is why they have to do the right there and why it's such a risk, because whatever they're calling down has existed before all of this. I hope I hope that's helping. It does. I mean, it's a as you can tell, this was a lot of a lot that I didn't expect to stumble into. <laughs> Not all that needs to be in the, answered in this book. No, you might get the answers and then deal with them later. Well, that's part of what I'm trying to do here is sift through. Okay, here's all the stuff, and how much of this, because so much of it dovetails off of, you know, into things that were kind of building up, and this is you know chapter twenty eight of thirty something. So. There are answers that have to be provided, although, as you said, not all. Exactly. Some, sometimes the best answer is a hint at a future answer. Right. I think it's been helpful in the sense of, okay, how much of this actually needs to be shown or said mm-hmm. to convey what's happening and why without losing the tension in how it's described. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail.